This is an ABC podcast. Governments have long grappled with how to stop global corporations from avoiding tax. It's time for corporate America and the wealthiest 1% of Americans to just begin to pay their fair share. Now, seven of the world's richest nations have come to an agreement in London. Global powers say it's time the world's richest companies pay their fair share of tax. For 50 years, governments across the globe have cut taxes for corporations and the wealthiest individuals, believing this will stimulate the economy and be good for all of us. But have you ever wondered about the logic behind that idea? How does cutting taxes for the super-rich and corporations stimulate the economy? And more importantly, have those cuts benefited the rest of us? Depending on where you stand politically, the idea of cutting taxes for the wealthy is either known as supply-side economics if you agree with it, or trickle-down economics if you don't. In this rear vision, we look at the history of supply-side or trickle-down economics, from its rise in the 1980s and 90s through to the period after the GFC, when issues of income inequality began to undermine its credibility. Brian Dimitrovic is the Richard Strong Scholar at the Lafferty Centre and the author of Econoclasts, the rebels who sparked the supply-side movement and restored American prosperity. The word that we use is supply-side economics, and that term was coined in 1976. And it refers to the non-Keynesian economics of the 1970s and 80s, which recommended when government is overprinting the currency and taxing and spending too much, that the solution is to cut tax rates and to have a sound monetary policy. And that policy mix is the heart of supply-side economics. The idea is actually very straightforward, and that is that a less progressive tax system, so a more regressive tax system, boosts economic growth and therefore also stimulates job creation and so on because it creates more incentives for capital owners, for investors to invest their capital, and that in the end has a positive impact on overall economic development. That's Julian Limburgh, lecturer in public policy at King's College in London, and one of the authors of The Economic Consequences of Major Tax Cuts for the Rich. So how long has this idea that tax cuts will stimulate economic growth been around? It is something that has been around for quite a long time, although it has never been that dominant. So the idea was already there at the time of the birth of the modern progressive tax system around the turn of the century, when there were debates about what kind of tax system countries should have, and people who were not in favor of more progressive taxes, taxes on income, tax on corporate income, already started to make this claim that a more progressive tax system would be a drag on economic growth. However, both in the general population, but also in the economics profession, it was never that dominant as an economic and political idea. So when you look at economists in the first half of the 20th century, there was a more widespread idea that actually a progressive tax system is enhancing economic growth. So for the first half of the 20th century, most economists believed that high taxes were good. And in the period after World War II, high taxes were considered fair. Gigi Foster is Professor of Economics in the School of Economics at the University of New South Wales. 
after the Second World War, there was such a feeling of community and unification of purpose and success and a notion of now we've rid the world of this scourge and we can now focus on building a, a wonderful society as the Great Society. And it was thought that in order to build the Great Society, we did need to have a kind of collective responsibility for financing that. And I mean, you can see sort of at a surface level, well, gee, if you tax the rich more, maybe you're going to have more equality. And that, that did pan out. If you look at the top tax rates in the US and Australia in that period, they were high. In Australia, were around 60% and in America, over 90%. But those tax rates were rarely paid by the top income earners. Tax rates at the top went up all the way to 91 to 94% through 1963. And the corporate rate was also 52%. And what happened is that high executives and the rich sheltered their income like never before. And the effective top tax rate of the very top 1% was at most about 35%. What's interesting is that economic growth and productivity in most Western nations in the 50s and 60s was very high, despite the high tax rates. But that changed in the 1970s when economies encountered inflation, stagnation and an oil shock. There are different explanations why this change happened. One explanation, which would be really straightforward, would be that the effect of the Second World War disappeared at that point, because there are theories that say the Second World War was really what drove progressive taxation, the reason why we saw these progressive tax systems in the post-war period. And this effect kind of disappeared by that time. This is one set of explanations. The other set of explanations stresses the economic problems that arose in the late 60s, and particularly in the 70s. So we had the first oil crisis, we had stagflation problems, and the idea of Keynesian demand management, which was often then closely linked to a progressive tax system, kind of came to its limits. Because at the same time, we had economic stagnation and high rates of inflation and politicians, economists were kind of searching for alternative ways of how to deal with this crisis because it seemed like former policy recipes weren't working anymore. The 1970s were a completely unacceptable decade of, of economic performance to the American people. The big problem was the hyperbolic inflation of the period. Inflation averaged something like 8% in the 1970s. The price level tripled from 1966 to 1982. And this was a time with regular tax rates going up to 70%, the capital gains level up over 40%, that the tax code was unindexed for inflation. Same thing with property taxes, such as in California, meaning that when people had to triple their salaries just to keep level with consumer prices, they faced ever higher tax rates because their salaries and income were nominally higher. And it made real tax bills go up stratospherically. And there had to be a tax cut in that circumstance or else the nation would have been eaten alive. And it's in that context that the supply siders found their greatest traction with the public. Good evening. I'm speaking to you tonight to give you a report on the state of our nation's economy. I regret to say that we're in the worst economic mess since the Great Depression. Ronald Reagan ran for president really in, in 1980 for one overriding reason, that the inflation of the 1970s was not abating at all. The price level had basically increased by about 1% regularly, especially in peacetime before 1965. And by 1980, it was increasing in the first part of that year at 20%. So he was interested in different solutions 
from those that had been proposed throughout the previous 10 years of the decade, because obviously all of those had failed. He had befriended Arthur Laffer, who had moved to Southern California in 1976 and spent a lot of time with him socially in those four years, 76 to 80. And he had become convinced that a bill that Arthur Laffer helped to write for Representative Jack Kemp of New York was the right solution. And that was a three-year, 30% tax rate cut. And he made it the centerpiece of his legislative agenda. Arthur Laffer is an American economist who was a member of Reagan's Economic Policy Advisory Board between 1981 and 89. He is best known for creating the Laffer Curve. Betsy Stevenson is a professor of economics and public policy at the University of Michigan and a former economic advisor to President Obama. As Reagan was elected, you had historically quite high taxes on households because of bracket creep that had happened due to inflation in the 1970s. And that allowed Reagan to campaign on the idea that we could cut tax rates without actually sacrificing much tax revenue. This was an idea made famous by Art Laffer, who famously drew on a napkin. You have tax rates going up and tax revenue going up until you hit a peak, at which point if you have tax rates any higher, tax revenue will actually go down because people will stop working or they'll stop reporting their income. Either way, you see tax revenue actually going down. And Art Laffer told Reagan, we're on the wrong side of this curve. We can actually cut our tax rates without losing tax revenue because we will give people such strong incentives to work and report their income truthfully that we won't lose revenue. In fact, we may even gain revenue. This was famously called voodoo economics, but I think it's not completely nonsensical in the sense that you know most economists believe if we have everybody paying 95% of what they earn into the tax pot, maybe people are going to be not being very truthful about what they earn, and maybe they won't have a lot of incentives to earn. And so if we cut taxes a little bit, we could end up possibly raising tax revenue. So theoretically, the idea was possible. It's even possible, although disputed by many, and I, I wouldn't say that I believe it, but it's possible that when Reagan first lowered taxes in the early 80s, that we were at a point where tax rates were so high that cutting taxes could have stimulated enough economic activity to do so without lowering revenue. Unfortunately, Reagan cut taxes too much. And as a result, revenue fell by too much. And Reagan also wanted to spend more on defense. And so we had to turn around and raise tax rates after the big cut because of that. But this idea sort of stuck in the craw of the Republican Party. This became known as supply side economics, that we could create such strong incentives for growth that we can cut tax rates without giving up too much in terms of tax revenue. The most obvious examples are actually the or the most prominent examples are the two big Reagan tax reforms in the 1980s. Top personal income tax rates were cut. The overall tax system was made less progressive, and this was 
motivated by the idea that this would lead to more economic growth. So I would say these are the most prominent examples. But we can also see in other countries that this happened, and at times even earlier. For instance, in Canada and New Zealand, we had some reforms beforehand. The US also had some reforms beforehand already in the 70s. So this wasn't the, the first time this happened, but I would say the most prominent times. And then we can also see that many countries followed suit. So for instance, in Australia, we had reforms in the late 1980s where corporate income tax rates were reduced quite significantly, where top income tax rates were reduced. And many Scandinavian countries, for instance, in the 1990s did the same thing. This is Rear Vision. I'm Annabelle Quince. And in this program, we're exploring the history of trickle-down or supply-side economics. That is the idea that by cutting taxes for the very wealthy in corporations, you stimulate the economy while maintaining government revenue. How successful were the Reagan tax cuts of the 1980s? According to Brian Dimitrovic, they led to two decades of economic boom. The growth boom of the 1980s, beginning in 1982 and then in the 1990s, was remarkable. I mean, there was a over 4% GDP growth run for seven years in the 1980s, and then an even higher growth run for, for seven years in the 1990s. Those growth runs are comparable to the greatest in American history, at least in the era of the income tax. They're comparable to the roaring 1920s. They're comparable to the tax cut era of the late 1940s and to that of the tax cut era of John F. Kennedy after 1963. So there was big growth for a long time in both the 1980s and 1990s, and it was non-inflationary. And this was in stark contrast to the 1970s, in which there was mediocre growth with epical inflation. So I think the American people intuitively understood that because stagflation in the 70s was a rough business, and it was completely dispatched in the 80s and 90s. Gigi Foster, however, says the 80s and 90s boom was more complex than just the tax cuts. Look, it's very multifactorial for sure. I don't think it was just the tax cuts. Any politician at that time who had hitched his cart to the horse of Ronald Reagan and Reaganomics would, of course, say that the tax cuts had a large part to play. But the recession was in the 1980s, early 1980s. In fact, my father lost his job in 1982, and it took about a year or so to find a new one. And I don't, as I recall, the, the major tax cuts didn't come through until after that. And by that point, he had already found a new job, and most of the rest of the country had as well. So, you know, the timing doesn't really line up. And of course, as I say, there are many other things going on. There was technological advancement in the background. There was the women's entry into the labor market. So there were, there were lots of other changes happening. You know, in, in every era, politicians like to take credit for the best things that have happened, even if they happen to just be the ones holding the string at that time. And really, their actions had nothing to do with what happened. There were, however, several unintended consequences, as Betsy Stevenson explains. What happened to tax revenue was it fell from 19.6% of GDP in 1981 to 17.3% in 1984. And that decline in revenue is not what Reagan originally predicted. The whole idea of the Laffer curve was you could cut the rates in a way that stimulated so much activity that they would still be bringing in the same amount of tax revenue. Instead, they were bringing in less tax revenue. The problem is that Reagan didn't have a plan to cut spending. U.S. federal spending has remained about 20% of GDP every year. And so when you have the revenue fall that much, you're creating budget deficits. And so 
if you go back to that period of time, the 1980s, it's known as the period where the U.S. kicked off its first really sustained period of deficit spending. And we've never really come back from that period with the idea of sort of balanced budgets or anything close to being a balanced budget, whether we're in good times or bad times. Yet it's interesting, the idea of how successful those tax rates were seemed to have really made an impact on sort of subsequent presidents and also the Republican Party. Yes, definitely. And I think what really happened is that there was a hitting upon of the idea that you could sell to the individual looking out for himself the concept of being rewarded more for his effort. And people after the Great Society period were more focused on their own back pockets. The stagflation of the 70s and the recession or the downturn in the 80s really, you know, focused people's minds on their individual situations. And there were a lot of stresses that I think made people feel that they needed to look after themselves. And to an audience which is primed to want to look after themselves, the idea that they would get a, you know, more of a return to their effort sounds appealing. And don't forget as well that when you are really poor, you don't want to think of yourself as really poor. You want to think of yourself as incipiently rich. And so when someone in power says, hey, we're going to give a tax break to the rich or even to the upper middle class. Even if you're poor, you think to yourself, well, you know, I'll, I'll be benefiting from that one day because I'm going to succeed. That's just what we want to think about ourselves. And so there was a, a real appeal to that notion of, of advancement and the potential to make it big, particularly in America, where you have this sort of story of, of advancement from, you know, being nothing and then rising through the ranks, you know, socially mobile, you know, meritocracy-based success to the, the very peak echelons of the elite, you know, even for somebody born poor in the, you know, Mississippi heartland. That's very, very unlikely, even today, but it was a story that was very motivating. So people started to, the politicians started to appeal to the individual's desire to have lower taxes. And then that really caught on. And of course, companies and the very, very rich people who ran them and who were in power in various places in the government, you know, didn't miss a trick. These are pretty smart people. And they would realize, look, if we can sell this lower tax rate story to the people broadly, well, gosh, that's going to be to our benefit as well. And so that started to kind of catch on in government for reasons beyond just the fact that the populations were in support of it, but rather the fact as well that the corporations and the uber rich were in support of it. And so you ended up with a system where everybody was barracking for these lower taxes and, and smaller government and, you know, don't constrain my freedom sort of arguments. But maybe it wasn't necessarily to the benefit of the population as a whole. Is there any evidence that over the past 50 years, tax cuts for the super rich or for corporations, has led to increased economic activity? That's the question Julian Limburg addressed in his work with David Hope in 2020. What we did in our work, we first created an indicator that should measure tax progressivity over the long run of history, over 50 years for a set of OECD countries. And then we looked at these instances where this tax progressivity has decreased substantially mainly big reforms like, for instance, the Reagan tax cuts, uh, and compared then the economic trajectories, the employment trajectories, and also inequality trajectories in those countries that did have major reforms that reduced taxes on the rich with those countries that didn't have these reforms. And what we see is that there is hardly any effect on economic development. So countries that had these major reforms are not doing better economically. They don't have stronger economic growth afterwards. 
And they also don't have better employment trajectories. We don't see much of a difference between those countries that enact these reforms and those countries that did not enact these reforms. However, what we see is that inequality increases substantially in those countries that have major tax cuts for the rich. So in the years afterwards, we see a substantive impact on inequality, particularly on the income of the richest members in society, what is often described as the top 1% of income earners. So what were the key countries you looked at? Yeah, the countries that we look at are advanced OECD democracies, one would call them. Western countries in Europe, North American countries, New Zealand, Australia, Japan. You mentioned inequality. Did you find a link between countries that I guess had pushed these reforms earlier and further than other countries and the level of inequality? Inequality increases with these reforms directly. And countries that had more of these reforms subsequently also had higher increases in inequality. So there's definitely an impact of these reforms on inequality developments, yes. Top incomes, uh, quite an amazing phenomenon. Wealth accumulation can only occur in the absence of taxation. So if there are, are very vigorous tax regimes that are successful in collecting on their rates, it is impossible to have a wealthy class because that class would have been taxed already and that wealth would never have been accumulated. So the very existence of a class of distinctly high earners and of wealthy people shows that there has not been a tax system that has effectively been collecting on such people. So I think what the history of taxation in the United States shows is that no matter what the tax rate, wealthy people are going to keep their money no matter what. And if the tax rates are high, they will figure out legal means to avoid those tax rates. And the means that they have to do so are much more inventive and imaginative and powerful than any counteracting move by governments. So I think if governments want revenue, the best thing to do is to tax the rich moderately or in a low fashion. And that way, the rich will come out of their shelters and the government will have revenue. And then they can relieve the lower earners of the entire burden of taxation. That's what Andrew Mellon argued in the 1920s. And it might be appropriate advice today. One of the key differences with the 1970s is the concentration of corporate power. Is there a connection between this concentration and the decrease in taxation? Oh, certainly. And it's the reason why the leaders of medium-sized to big-sized companies will have barracked so strongly for them. Because, of course, it's an advantage. It's a competitive advantage. And that competitive advantage can then be used even more in various other dimensions, apart from just taxation, to increase further the market share of those large companies. And don't underestimate the, the degree of connection between the leaders of really big companies, multinational companies, and the leaders of governments around the world who basically feel that they want to be seen to be doing something that's good for their countries, but at the same time realize how much more dependent they are on these large corporations than used to be the case back in, say, the 80s or the 70s. So it's very hard to say no to Amazon if Amazon says, hey, we might uh, maybe set up a shop in your town Right. If you're the mayor and you say no to that, boy, do you look bad. <laughs> you look like, what, you're going to say no to all those jobs and all that quote-unquote investment and all of the, the economic boon that that will bring to our area? What are you? Are you looking after us or what? So that's just not a vote-winning strategy. Instead, a much more palatable politically 
message would be, well, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll have Amazon come here, but we'll make sure that they are clean in their operations and that they have a minimum number of jobs that they give for our people and that they you know, do all, all sorts of other things in line with regulation that we think is appropriate to protect our population. Now, that goes reasonably well for a while, but over time, those regulations will be gradually lobbied against by the more and more powerful companies, and there's more and more pressure to repeal those kinds of regulations because the population isn't, isn't paying attention, basically. So I think that's what's happened a lot here, and, and one of the reasons why I think trickle-down economics isn't as likely to work out now is exactly what you mentioned, that these companies are less likely to use those found gains, let's say, the additional revenue that they can retain rather than paying it in tax, to invest in projects and um, ideas and research that will deliver more jobs and higher quality products and at lower prices to people, which is you know kind of what the whole trickle-down idea was supposed to be about, because there are plenty of other places that they can spend the money, whether it's on lobbying efforts or on distributions to shareholders uh, or on just lining the pockets of the people who are running the company. Did the global financial crisis shift our thinking on taxation? So what we saw after the global financial crisis is that top personal income tax rates increased in many countries, particularly those that were hit by the global financial crisis. We can see some effects, some positive developments meaning that tax rates increased for taxes, for instance, on dividends, so taxes on capital income of the individual. We didn't really see much of an effect on corporate income taxation, so on taxing profits afterwards, which is very likely to be connected to the fact that there is, are still these competitive elements or so competition over corporate income taxation. But what I would argue, what we can see after the global financial crisis is a major challenge of this previously dominant idea that lower taxes on top personal incomes, on corporations and so on, really lead to more economic growth. Yes, we had the Trump tax cuts in 2017, but overall, when we look at the data, there are far fewer instances of these kind of reforms. And also what happened ever since is that there had been a push towards more international cooperation of regulating the international system of corporate taxation and also of capital income taxation. So you would mark the global financial crisis as almost like a, a sort of pivot moment, that after that, apart from the Trump tax cuts, there really weren't many more tax cuts happening across the globe. Yes, I would definitely argue that. And it also fits nicely to what we can see in history, actually. For instance, in some work, we've looked into the very origins of income taxation, of progressive income taxation, and we could see that these often happened after major economic shocks. Throughout history, major economic shocks facilitated, for instance, the introduction of personal income taxation. And this fits very much to, to what we could see after the global financial crisis. The G7 has multinational companies in its sights, particularly tech giants operating across borders. I imagine that world leaders may well be interested in coordinating their tax policies, but I do not believe that the global electorate is interested in coordinating tax policies. I think global population very much is interested in tax competition, is interested in seeing, well, if one jurisdiction has relatively high tax rates. I'd like to see if I could go to another jurisdiction and make a go of it there. So whatever the leaders are doing, I think they might face a political legitimation crisis if they try to enforce 
any kind of uniform tax rate across the world. I think an outrider of this kind of problem is seen in cryptocurrencies. Governments are now seeing that the global public really does not like sovereign fiat currencies. And if those governments don't do something about that, then the public will create them by themselves. Well, two things to say. The first is, when in history have you seen the powerful voluntarily give up their power? And my answer is your answer. They don't do it. But the second thing is simply the existence of national sovereignty. So if a given country or even a suite of countries decide that they're going to play hardball with companies and set a really high tax rate or at least a minimum tax rate of whatever it is, 20% or whatever, companies are still going to be able to flee to the one or two or three countries out of 200 and however many we have that decide not to play hardball. <laughs> and so that reality is something that is just not being addressed in the dialogue these days. Gigi Foster, Professor of Economics at the University of New South Wales. My other guests, Brian Dimitrovic, author of Econoclasts. Betsy Stevenson, Professor of Economics at the University of Michigan. And Julian Lindbergh, co-author of The Economic Consequences of Major Tax Cuts for the Rich. Today's sound engineer is Anne-Marie de Betancourt. I'm Annabel Quince, and this is Rear Vision on Radio National. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.